0: We'd like to take a minute to thank our sponsor Cash App. Cash App has been the number one finance app on the App Store for almost two years. It was also the first major peer-to-peer payments app to support Bitcoin, and it's still the fastest and easiest way to turn cash into crypto. Cash App now supports Bitcoin deposits in-app. So be sure to move your Bitcoin from whatever wallet you're using to Cash App. Don't have any to deposit? Cash App is also the most convenient way to instantly buy and sell Bitcoin. No more waiting five days for your ACH transfers to come through. With Cash App, you can buy Bitcoin instantly. When you're ready to take full ownership of your private keys, just use Cash App to scan an external wallet's QR code. It's really that simple. Cash App also comes with standard banking features like direct deposits and others your bank would never even consider. Like Cash Card, a customizable debit card that lets you instantly save every time you use it at Lyft, Whole Foods, and places like Chick-fil-A. It's also a favorite of The Block's analyst Steven Zhang. He saves money at Chipotle every time he gets a burrito. That keeps Stephen happy, that keeps the block happy, and that keeps the crypto world informed with the best news and research in the entire market. Download Cash App today from the App Store or Google Play, and I hope you enjoy the episode. All right. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for tuning in to what is a very special episode of The Scoop. We are on location at Blockchain.com's New York offices with the CEO, Peter Smith. Very excited to have him on the show. He's been a Long fan and follower of the block, and I I will respectfully put words in his mouth. They've raised $70 million. They are probably best known for their wallet business, which spans 40 million wallets, um, active wallets in the cryptocurrency market. They've just launched an exchange. They operate a lending business, an OTC business. They're very active in the market, and we're very excited to chat all things wallet and exchange and it's funny and and you mentioned it be- before we turned on the mics Peter that you know folks used to make fun of or question the robustness or the viability rather of an ex- of a wallet business and now it seems that's flipped on its head and with folks launching an exchange what seems like every other week or every other month now it's the exchange business that's being questioned as we Possibly see fee compression and the like.
1: Yeah. So thanks for having me on. You know, obviously a big fan of the block, and um, uh, you know, happy happy to talk about the industry today. I think one of the things is worth bearing in mind is that at this point I'm basically like a grandpa of crypto. I've been doing this a very long time, um, and you know, I've been venture backed a long time in the space. One of the f- earlier venture backed companies. And there's definitely been like these cycles and, and I've now been through several of them even on the like what is a good idea for a business in the crypto space front. And so I can remember when the single greatest idea in crypto was to be a hardware, mining hardware manufacturer. Um, that meme has happened twice. Once way back when in the early beginning, once when Bitmain came to prominence. Um, and then in the wallet space, you know early on in crypto every major venture round was a wallet company so in 2014 you had four big financings coinbase uh pre-exchange raised 20 million zappo raised 20 million circle raised 24 million we raised 30 million all these huge rounds you know in crypto all all towards consumer
0: businesses wallet Mm -hmm. businesses non-custodial and custodial and custodial yeah both
1: and um and Uh, Even BitGo back then was actually a consumer multi-signature wallet. And they raised, I think, 12, something like that, same year. So then, you know, of course, over time, this is all cycles. At some point, it was a really dumb idea to have a wallet business. Uh, Then it was a smart idea. It was a dumb idea. It's gone back and forth several times. For much of 2019, I feel like people were very down on the wallet business because exchanges sort of came to prominence. And what people have to realize is exchanges only came to prominence when there was a wide diversity of asset pairs. So, you know, back in the day, an exchange just had BTC, USD, one pair. Not -hmm. a very interesting product. Um, Now, of course, exchanges are a little more interesting. But the point is, like, this stuff is incredibly cyclical. And as we were talking about before we turned on the mics, it does feel like now we're going from wallets are a bad idea to exchanges are a bad idea. Um, And there's a lot of reasons why the exchange business is really tough. Uh, one of those reasons is that it's a power user product, which means that it's much harder to create lock-in. So, you know, if you're someone that uses your Bitcoin wallet or, or any consumer product a few times a month, you're probably not going to change products. Like we have users that have been logging in monthly, quarterly, every year for six, seven years, mm-hmm. right? With exchanges, people are always looking at new products, new UIs, liquidity, fees. It really matters to them, and so keeping those people constantly satisfied is really tough. And there's not that many active trading customers in crypto compared to just the sheer number of consumer crypto holders or consumer crypto users.
0: Are you saying there's less brand loyalty? You think there? Are there's are really no out there? brand
1: loyalty in in prosumer products.
0: You don't think there are traders out there who you know really love. Cracking UI, cracking UX, and want to stick to that experience versus you certainly can get used to
1: it, right? Sure, but um, you know, the minute someone comes out with a you know more, more compelling products, like when I mean that by pairs, a you know better UI, better fee structure, like you're sort of constantly under under threat. And as an exchange, because your fees are very low, actually you make most of your money not from institutions, not from the very most active, but from the middle. You don't make a lot of money from people that tra- you know, log in w- once a quarter and place one trade. And those people are very sticky. You make most of your money from active traders that are trading every single week, maybe every single day um, on a retail level. So those guys are very, very flighty, um, to put it lightly. Uh, and so now, what is it good about an exchange? Well, an exchange can make a lot of money. An exchange can have a network effect Um, around liquidity liquidity is very hard to create Um, takes years in most cases we've been very fortunate on that front Um, but you know we are kind of transitioning into a overcrowded exchange space uh, where a lot of these exchanges don't have any any source of of edge and i think that'll be interesting to watch kind of shake out
0: i do want to go back to the wallet business but first i i have one question thinking about the launch of the exchange previously known as the PIT, now blockchain.com exchange, you had one thing that definitely would play into your favor. You had 40 million wallet accounts sending flows outside to Coinbase and other exchanges every day to make various trades, basically revenue that you weren't capturing. But at the same token, no pun intended, you know, folks, at least at the time, and I, th- I think even still, are looking to connect to less and less venues i mean to your point it's a very oversaturated crowded market with those two factors in mind how did you see that rollout play out did did the flows that you were seeing go off to other exchanges did you capture some of that to what degree did you capture that and does that continue to evolve
1: yeah so um actually the name change is a good story too um we were experimenting with this idea of creating a standalone brand that would be, you know, a little more edgy, different marketing look and feel. And and then we launched and we ran a lot of A-B tests and, and um, you know, the pit was a name I liked. And uh, as it turned out, uh, pretty, much, pretty much customers hated it. Uh, you could put almost anything in the A-B test and it would outperform the pit. You know, you could put like chicken and it might outperform the pit
0: what, what what were some that actually outperformed the
1: pit yeah uh, everything the yeah pit but, lost every a b test
0: but chicken wasn't one of them
1: chicken we never ran chicken but we ran things <laughs> like you know blockchain exchange exchange yeah. blockchain trading blockchain pro um you know bcex like really a, a pretty wide variety of ideas um we ran mercury which was the, the internal code name of the project and is still the code name of the matching engine um, none of it, you know, everything outperformed the pit. Um, and we have a tradition of blockchain where we celebrate mistakes one week a year, um, sort of mistakes and what we learned from them. And this year, my, my mistake was, was definitely my, uh, my advocacy of the pit brand, which was crushed by customer feedback.
0: So after you changed the name, what did, did you see any change in volume? Yeah, growth I mean, Or uh, volumes?
1: You know, the, the reality is that because we have this sort of like, captive audience we have an ability to generate quite strong growth on that product and have seen really strong growth on that product but changing the name has improved conversion and reduced the number of support tickets asking us is this your exchange which was a big support ticket category for a while interesting um, always embarrassing
0: as a percentage what did what did it make up
1: I don't know offhand but it was you know thousands
0: thousands of support <laughs> to tickets.
1: keep in mind we get millions yeah. of support tickets but um, it was a big chunk. Yeah, it was, it was not insignificant. Um, okay, so, name, so, the change, so the exchange is, is actually it's, it's doing pretty well in the sense that it's growing somewhere between 20 and 30% week over week, um, which is pretty incredible for any product actually. Uh, particularly in a market where volume has mostly in the spot market been going down. Um, it's been doing really well. From a liquidity perspective, it's a top five spot fiat crypto exchange. So it's incredibly liquid Um, and it's trading, you know, I think the launch week was three months ago, basically, maybe a little more than that. Three, three, three ish months ago. You know, the first week of launch, it was a top 100 (laughs) crypto exchange. Then it was top 50 in month two and top 20, 25 in in month three. Um, So
0: how much of your wallet customer base did you capture with the exchange?
1: Oh, you know, it was instantaneous, just absolute 100% capture in the first eight weeks. That's um, amazing. No, no, that didn't happen. Um, that'll take time. Uh, and, and you know we've kind of always been settled in for the long haul there. And I think that but we have had the biggest source of customers on the exchange is people that are linking their wallet account to the exchange. So that's that thesis that we had, our source of edge in the exchange phase is definitely playing out and driving you know, the 20 30% week over week growth. Mm-hmm we you know want to build a full stack crypto product experience in the sense that we want to make it possible for anyone to easily buy crypto, sell crypto, use crypto, trade crypto, trade advanced crypto financial products, borrowing, lending full stack in the sense that i think the product experience of 2017 where you had like a google drive spreadsheet reminding you of all the accounts you had at various crypto companies is a one time sort of experience is an experience that's going away i think in the future you will have a customer will have one relationship with a crypto company for the most part there'll always be those pro you know sort of uh very geeky wonderful people who have an account everywhere but i think the average human being will have one primary relationship just like you have one primary relationship in the fiat finance world and you'll do most of your financial services through that one primary relationship
0: When you were on Laura Shin's podcast last year, you talked about the size of the non-custodial market and the custodial market in terms of transactions, the former being much larger by your estimates of your own proprietary data. You have data scientists somewhere in here spouting off and doing their, their various businesses. It seems strange to me that that would be the case. And... If it is the case, why would you then go from this, this non-custodial business that is apparently so large to this exchange business that is more insignificant?
1: So a couple of reasons. So first of all, wider perspective, we've been collecting the on-chain data for the crypto industry since before anyone else, uh, since 2011. Um, and so we do have a, a quite a deep uh, data set here. I think the other thing to remember, though, is that, you know, we um, ha- invested heavily into a, a platform to track flows, particularly within the B- Bitcoin ecosystem, because it's the biggest ecosystem. Our non custodial wallet generates about 25 to 30% of all Bitcoin transactions on a daily basis. The next nearest competitor is another consumer company, um, and they're about 10 to 11%, and they're a custodial product. The next one behind that is a non-custodial product. I think that a lot of people own Bitcoin via a centralized custodian, but when you look at where the Bitcoins are sitting across the ecosystem, most Bitcoins are still sitting in non-custodial sort of storage setups. Mm-hmm. You know, this is would be us. We uh, have a huge number of Bitcoins in our in our systems, and then. Folks like, you know, hardware wallets, even people that set up, you know, sort of Bitcoin QT offline wallets way back when. Because, you know, the earlier the system, the more Bitcoins it's likely to have in the crypto space because of the, you know, sort of natural effect of, you know, when we got started, Bitcoins cost $5. Mm -hmm. Um, That said, there are things that you can do for customers when you have a custody system that you simply can't do when you are non-custodial. One of those things is offer a really compelling active trading product where price discovery can happen. And so what we wanted to do was make it really easy for our customers to take their non-custodial bitcoins, which we believe that's our default, is how do we get customers to hold their own money? Because we believe that's important from a financial freedom perspective.
0: Be your own bank.
1: Be your own bank. How do we get customers, how do we make it really easy for them to trade on that venue? And so we've built things that connect the wallet. You, know, you can view balances both ways across the product. And over time, I think you'll see protocols. Um, one is a very early one, which is not quite ready for prime time, but is very cool, in our opinion, called Arwen, where you'll be able to hold on to your crypto, but still trade on a centralized door book. Magical math. You know, as crypto people, we love our magic math. And so over time, I think you'll see less and less balance on the venue because that's, that's our default position, is how do we decentralize custody as much as possible? But there are some things you can only do when you have custody of those funds. And I think that what we found historically was by not participating in that market, we are sending customers to other places. And sometimes they would have good product experiences, and sometimes they would have horrible product experiences. Hacks, theft, losses, support tickets not being responded to. One of our biggest categories of tickets in 2017, 2018 was tickets about other exchanges. You know, so we're getting, you know, we got a million tickets about one exchange. a com, you know, a very well-known, well-regarded company in the crypto space we got a million tickets about customer issues with this product. And for me,
0: when we have this do, relationship with customers. That? And what does that and how, how do you respond to that? And what does the customer do in response to that? Does well, that usually we're getting the ticket because blockchain. Doesn't
1: move them on blockchain. Usually, you know, they had some positive customer experience with us with something we really, really focus on. Um, and then they're having a negative experience over there and they ping us and they're like, hey, can you help me? And, you know, I've instructed our team to like do what they can in those scenarios. Now, of course, like if it's a question about UI, you know, we can sometimes help them. If it's a question, you know, a general crypto question, we can help them. If it's, you know, I had this problem, you know, we don't have access to their database. So, and, and, you know, there's no, that happens across crypto companies. It's not just, you know, there's isn't one offender. Um, and so we wanted to be able to take better care of our customers end to end. And, and then, of course, you know, as you noted, there's a revenue opportunity there. We are uh, a business. Mm-hmm. We like that monies. Um, and so, you know, we wanted to go out there and capture more of it.
0: Let's think about the money that exists in the non-custodial wallet business itself. I remember when we first started engaging with each other. That was a question I would always sort of pick at you about. I, yeah, I, you
1: were you're better looking then.
0: I was. Yeah. I was. The times have changed. You had you didn't crypto, have crypto. Crypto hard. Hair. It is hard. It's really you know takes a toll, especially having to work with Mike Dudas. Oh, that guy. Woo. Could you imagine? So back then, the the obvious um, revenue source for. The business would have been advertising, I guess, but so you gotta
1: think—you gotta think about the wallet as a web browser.
0: That's Uh, part of it,
1: and for crypto, you know. So what you know, the human mind works on analogies, and they're largely imperfect. But I would think I like to think of the wallet as a browser, and within the browser, people make money in in different ways. They make money in advertising, e-commerce, transactionally, and the, the wallet is the same. You know, we make money um from you know eyeball's impressions uh, very related to the explorer product we make money uh by providing liquidity so there's a, a brokerage product inside the wallet both crypto to crypto as well as fiat to crypto um and we will likely make money with lending products as well um inside the wallet itself and so one of the hard things about the wallet is that it's not like you know when you when you're like how does an exchange, no one asks how an exchange makes money because, you know, the funny thing is exchanges actually, really successful ones, often make more of their money in ancillary services than they do in uh,
0: commissions. But What's the breakdown here? Do you make more of your money on auxiliary services or the wallet business?
1: The wallet is the driver. Yeah. The wallet's for sure the driver. But, you know, for us, it's really important to build, and we've talked about this before, to build a diverse set of revenue streams particularly because the wallet business is very correlated to the crypto market at large. And so the focus for much of the last two years has been building sort of adjacent, yet um, less correlated revenue lines. But that's the hard thing about a wallet though, is, is it's not a point you know point and shoot simple product. It's a browser for a whole new financial system in which you know your job as a wallet provider is to expose information and choices, and hopefully provide some liquidity to the user, versus you know a very narrow thing like a hardware wallet is you know just signs a transaction right, mm-hmm. or a you know uh, exchange, which is a fairly obvious function. A wallet is a deep product; it's a complex product to get right from an information UX perspective and our primary value is being easy enough for anyone to use still non-custodial you know sort of financial decentralization disintermediation freedom and third support a variety of chains doing those three things simultaneously while onboarding millions of customers you know every year all over the world in 17 languages is a complicated you know project
0: how do you continue to push the envelope with that product improve it expand it make it more user friendly
1: i wish that we pushed harder to be honest um, it's sometimes you know it's a it's a big responsibility to know that you're shipping a product to so many people who rely on it for something really important and in many cases in parts of the world we're like they are really relying on it. You know, Venezuela, Brazil, Ukraine—these kind of places where like they're really relying on you to get it right. Um, and so we're a little more conservative now than we used to be. Uh, I think for us pushing the envelope is going to look a lot like some of the stuff I mentioned around how do you pledge capital but not give up custody of it? How do you, you know, do on-chain lending? How do you? do on-chain social consensus for restoring access to funds. So this stuff is sort of deep tech work and, and challenging, but I think it's stuff that we're pretty excited to, to get into.
0: In terms of reaching those foreign markets, those markets in the underdeveloped world, right, where banking services are, are scarce and um, difficult to access for, for many, many folks, do you think with things like Libra coming online and, and folks questioning whether or not crypto has actually tapped into those areas of the world, has blockchain fallen short of this mission of banking the unbanked or enabling folks to become their own bank?
1: So we've never specifically set out to bank the unbanked.
0: Um, there's a difference there. There's a huge difference. bank be your own bank Yeah. and Bank the unbanked.
1: Our mission is to be your own bank. Our mission What's is. What's the difference between the two? Yeah, so two? be your own bank says we want to enable anyone to be a self-sovereign financially individual. Mm-hmm. We want you know you, Frank, to have the tools to hold your own money directly, to be in control, to be sovereign as an individual. Banking the underbank says extend financial services to people who don't have financial services today. There is overlap between these two things. I think that in a lot of cases, the financial services that someone who's unbanked living in Ghana today needs is very unrelated to what you guys be are a doing self-sovereign here. financial individual, right? Um, and, and so the two things are not the same thing, fundamentally. Um, so I don't feel like we've delivered on a mission of banking the unbanked, because that's just never been our mission, and I'm not sure that we would do that via crypto anyway. But I do feel like we've delivered that vision of making it pretty easy for anyone to be a self-sovereign financial individual, and the proof is in the pudding there. Like if we hadn't delivered that, we wouldn't be generating the most Bitcoin transactions. You know, we wouldn't be in the consumer position that we're in, and that's an incredible accomplishment from the team here. Um, because if you wind the clock back to when all those financings were happening that I was talking about in you know 2013, 2014. No one thought that a non-custodial approach would get mass adoption, and most of the financings were to custodial solutions. You know, two of the biggest examples of that, you know, having not really gone on to seize a lot of the market. I think, though, you know, uh, as someone who lived in developing markets, including in Africa it always cracks me up a little bit when people in fintech talk about banking the unbanked.
0: Does it crack you up the way Libra and
1: Facebook sort of describe it? It's incredibly naive. Um, It's, yes. I I wish them the best and I hope the project works.
0: It's strange to me that they, it's strange to me that Facebook and other firms in the space view stablecoins as being this panacea to this issue of unbanked people. I don't, I don't think they view it. If you have it, a stablecoin, I mean, there's so many other steps that you need to implement to actually get people to engage with that stablecoin.
1: Yeah, you know, what it does do for the big tech companies is it makes commerce on the internet easier, which is net good for the tech company. It's good company. for Facebook merchants' right. business. But I don't know if it has a lot to do with banking the unbanked. Maybe in the sense that You know, technology, the more efficient it is, scales more, more, you know, lower cost of service, et cetera, sort of a third or second order effect. And I actually love the work that the Libra folks are doing. hope it comes to market. I think that the reality is the Chinese approach, you know, which is supported by the government as part of the um, Belt and Road Initiative, is Mm going to hit the market way sooner and probably be a, a way bigger deal, both to the crypto market as well as the overall global financial system
0: why is it good for the crypto market
1: look I think any one I mean credentializing right uh, Two. so if China can do it you know if China does it Sweden it's not a big deal when they do it you know it's not a big deal when Turkey does it it's not a big deal when Germany you know so on and so forth but secondly you know the, the Chinese view it as a way of encouraging trade through a specific other region region of the world that already has pretty high crypto adoption. And on top of that, um, anytime you have a really high quality asset come into the crypto space, that's net positive for the crypto space, in my belief.
0: Mm-hmm. So Facebook Libra, naive, but you love it. I think that they're, and
1: maybe, you know, I think some of the things that they say around the project's sort of, Relevance to the unbanked is naive. Um, but, it, you know, it is a good storyline. And so maybe it's not naive at all. Maybe it's the opposite of naive.
0: I don't think they foresaw the regulatory headwinds that ultimately came to fruition.
1: I I am very confident that they were not ready for it.
0: Maybe we could talk about that a little bit. Not Facebook's regulatory headwinds, but we mentioned over Telegram, We might, we could get into it now if, if it's something you're comfortable with i want to throw something out of left field but you said that the environment in the uk is a little more uh clear there's there's more clarity than there than there was
1: yeah um is that the is,
0: talk a little bit about that
1: yeah so i'll, I'll caveat was saying that i sort of got out of the crypto policy and legal game a long time ago hired some professionals and, and they do an <laughs> admirable job um that said, you know the UK has been a good place to be in the sense that it's been a very collaborative environment, um, and on top of that, it has become more and more clear over time. The big sort of change this year is that you know crypto firms now sort of are more part of the SEA process than they previously were, um, which I think is net good for the the whole market. Um, that said, I think there's still a long way to go to figuring out regulatory for crypto internationally Um, and there are a lot of challenges in in front of the whole industry. Partly to do with the fact that like you have sort of a big bifurcation between what you could largely describe as like the regulated and or largely normalized section of the industry and then the sort of cowboy section. Mm -hmm. Um, And the two things are so related that it's kind of hard to separate them. I think the research that's most clear on this is like the stuff Bitwise has put out that you guys have covered really well, which makes it quite clear that like there's sort of two crypto systems and they're related but also strange.
0: Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, the activity of the Wild West section hurts the. I mean, absolutely. I think
1: um, I think the Plus Token story is a good example of that, where you know you have a huge amount of money being sold via you know two exchanges in in Asia uh, Binance and Huobi um, a huge amount of bitcoin being sold via them that was you know stolen mm-hmm. from people uh, from the whole plus token scam i think you know you guys actually i read the report via the block you know the chainalysis report um, it
0: had a huge impact on the on the bitcoin huge market huge
1: impact on the bitcoin market bitcoin price you know both like all the people that got burned by the scam as well as like you know, essentially depressing the price of Bitcoin for, you know, probably six to nine months. And the fact that that kind of stuff can still happen at that scale is worrisome.
0: S- since you've been in the market for so long and blockchain has been in the market since its earliest days, really, you must have some worst stories. I've had um, Michael Morrow at Genesis on the podcast and he, he talked about one time he had some counterparty enter a room with briefcases of money looking to make a, a trade. Obviously, the space has grown up a lot since then. They didn't make the trade, uh, to be sure. When you hearken back on the, on those earlier days, even 2017, right, what are some of the more interesting stories you can share?
1: Well, you know, I remember um, when Mt. Gox went down um, and, and getting the updates from, from magical tux, you know, in the Skype chat, um, that was, that was pretty intense. <laughs> um, you know, uh, there's been several sort of like cataclysmic events in crypto and, uh, and I kind of remember those, uh, pretty well as it turns out, um, I think for me, what I look back on really fondly, rather than sort of a a war story, is the uh, Bitcoin event in Amsterdam, which was the sort of kind of funny, it was like the peak Bitcoin Association moment. They put on this really nice conference in Amsterdam. And it's really the first time that a lot of people got to see each other, like meet each other. And it was the first time that Bitcoin and crypto felt like a real community and a real movement. You know, and and of course later all communities and movements start to fragment and and etc. Um, and we all know about the later Civil War, but there was this really beautiful moment there that I walked away from that event in Amsterdam, being like, "Wow, this is real. This is like worth dedicating your life to." And that was when you know shortly after that was when we you know professionalized business, raised a Series A, and so on and so forth, and so. I've always remembered this sort of really sunny afternoon in Amsterdam with my co-founder Nick and my co-founder Ben and all the other sort of original crypto OGs. And, and just, it's just a beautiful moment that has become sort of like something that I've been very thankful for over the years since.
0: Andreas, our producer, is shedding a tear <laughs> right now. Well, it's nice to harken back on, on, on days of yore. Um, let's look to, to the future mm. for blockchain 2020. What should we expect?
1: You know, listen, so we have, you know, really four business units here. We've got our our data business. So if your project is publishing interesting data that you want more people to see, let us know. We're happy to to work with you. We've got the wallet business, which you've spent the podcast talking about. You'll see more functionality, more assets, some pretty cool product innovation. We have something coming on around the end of the year that I think people will be really stoked about. Um, got the exchange, uh, you know, get on there, trade. Um, if you got product feedback, send me an email. It's Peter at blockchain. Um, and then we have our markets business, which is, you know, sort of like a little investment bank, you know, doing a lot of structured products, a lot of lending, investing, liquidity.
0: What type of structured products? Uh,
1: there's all kinds of stuff you can write, like, you know, offtakes, um, vol, um, got a got a pretty talented sort of quant team inside there and uh we're willing to do a lot of a lot of unique work with clients mm-hmm. um and so you know if we can be helpful you know you're working in crypto or or even you just have a have a product you want to build and just get in touch
0: what are some of the more interesting ones you've put together probably
1: some of the big off takes yeah um and then some of the big like working capital lines where people want to retain their crypto portfolio, people, projects, institutions. So, say you launch, you know, uh, Frank Coin, and uh, you raise a bunch of money for Frank Coin, but you tax reasons or whatever don't want to sell all the Bitcoin you raised. You know, we might do a working capital line for you, um, which can be a tax-efficient strategy, uh, from what I understand, mm-hmm. and. Um, We're going to try to like take that down to the retail level, which I'm pretty excited about.
0: And would you need any sort of licenses or is there a regulatory framework around products of that nature?
1: I'm sure. Um, and I leave that in the the capable hands of our general counsel, Howard.
0: (laughs) That's interesting. Who do you think are your competitors now? The business has changed so much. It's, it's evolved um sort of every unit has a competitor inside of blockchain uh
1: you know it's kind of interesting to think about us as like a group company like a hold co. and we run existing products and we build new ones like you know the lending business is very very much a new business and a huge business um so we have competitors everywhere but a good example is the lending business which is very new very recent growing very fast three months old uh, I guess it's probably five, six months old
0: now. This summer, right? Yeah. 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 So.
1: And, you know, that business has competitors like, um, you know, Grayscale or Genesis, Genesis, mm-hmm. um, Galaxy. We also do a lot of business with Genesis and Galaxy, you know, um, collaboratively, great relationships. So I-, I don't view the crypto world at this point in time as zero sum. I think that. Right now, the crypto market is actually pretty small in the grand scheme of finance in the world. Um, that's not really a qualitative view. And yeah, it's quantitative view. We have yet mm-hmm. to reach 1% of the size of the mainstream financial system. So at this point in time, like uh, I think the focus from everyone should be on, on building something worth competing over. Whereas right now, I, I think it's, you know, we should be all collaborating.
0: Mm-hmm. Entering businesses like lending, um is an interesting step for a consumer business to make, right? Maybe a risky step. Uh, People have talked about... Well, we're not, I mean, we haven't
1: really been purely a consumer business for two years now, right? So we're famous for the consumer business because you do marketing for the consumer business. Mm -hmm. But we've been in in the sort of institutional or, you know, call it, big size business for for quite some time i guess more because even more have than all two these years
0: points now. on hand i mean that's... yeah
1: and you know and and i think over time you want the business to be constantly evolving and expanding um at least that's our view and we always want to be a place where you know if some person comes and is like hey i've got this idea to do something we're going to be like okay cool how do we make that happen um and that's very much the culture here we have i think the last time i counted, we had. We have 13 former founders and CEOs working at blockchain, um, out of a headcount of, you know, 200 people or something.
0: Aside from the name, the pit, what are some of the ideas that maybe were a bit lackluster, didn't pan out quite as well as you anticipated?
1: You know, um, at the risk of turning this into a confessional podcast, I think one of the things that I underrated as a CEO um, was, you know, uh, three or four years ago, everyone's like, you know, CEOs, you know, a little older than me, a little, not older than me, but like uh, more advanced in their journey. We're talking about how hard it is to build a management team. And I was like, what are you guys talking about? You interview some people, you hire some people, like, yeah, please. It's really hard to build a very high output, highly effective management team. It's a, you know, when I started doing it, I was like, okay, this will take me a year. And I was hilariously uh, underestimated. It's tough to bring in a very talented group of people, get alignment in the right place, get the chemistry in the right place, and then execute at a very high level, you know, and you need that execution almost immediately while they learn a new market. All of that simultaneously is very tough. Like you know, you guys at the block have sort of a very funny team spirit. Uh, you seem to mostly talk to each other via Twitter. Um, just a lot of tweeting at each other, bullying each other on Twitter.
0: Oh, you love it, and I love
1: it. Yeah, I'm a huge fan.
0: He messages me whenever Larry dunks on me hard.
1: <laughs> and you know what? It's funny. I don't message Larry. Like I'm. Not, I don't. I don't message with Larry. Probably for the best. I just message with you for some reason. And I really enjoy it when you guys really crush each other. Um, I think it's great but you have to build that sort of commodity and you have to do it in a pretty tough environment in a, in a business that's incredibly global you know, we have five offices. So that's a big challenge and I think my you know underestimation of, of the challenge was was probably a mistake and when I talk to you know crypto founders that we've invested in in our venture fund or you know, other tech founders that just want to chat, you know, they're like, Hey, what should I be thinking about early? I'm like, start thinking about that.
0: So you've had some people, you know, come and go, obviously. Yeah. I mean, we've been in business, but
1: we've been in, we've been doing this for seven plus years. So, um, yeah, we have, we have some alumni.
0: What do you think is the main reason why people are either attracted to blockchain or end up running for the door or- yeah sure to the door so i think that depending on the person
1: i think that it's probably easiest to just talk about the kind of people that are successful here um because that's usually what attracted them to work here and usually the ones that end up going are just because they didn't fit into the alignment people come here because they're really excited about building in the environment that we offer which is a lot of autonomy a lot of flexibility a lot of like um room to run there's not a lot of you know sort of micromanagement here um but at the same time being able to do that at scale so when you you know when you're a product manager of blockchain and you launch something you know millions of people are probably going to see it Um, which you know in the crypto space there's very few companies you can work for that that's true Um, and you know, people that are very successful here in the long term are the ones that are just kind of, you know, constantly willing to stand up and take on the next challenge. Um, you know, we really reward a bias for action and a, and a customer focus. That doesn't always work out. Um, and, you know, over time, we've kind of developed a better understanding of what backgrounds will result in success here and what backgrounds are less likely to result in success here.
0: Do you think um, as CEO, do you think you can be tough? Maybe a little too tough?:
1: I think that um, I think that the other thing to understand about being a CEO is that I've also been one for a very long time, and I've probably evolved over that time. We, we hope I have. Um, I think I am most people here would describe me as intense. Yeah, and I that's think what I've heard. I'm very intense and uh, I don't um, don't try to pretend I'm not. I think that I've also been very specific to never ask anyone to do anything or anything more than what I would do. So, you know, if the team is here, if we're pushing hard, I'm going to be here. Like no one is ever going to work harder at blockchain than I am and i'm very committed to that but i am an intense ceo and something that you know at this point is probably never going to change
0: well i think that's a really interesting place to end the show peter thank you so much for coming on for sure really interesting conversation Thanks so much for listening to this episode of The Scoop. We hope you tune in next time. And don't forget to subscribe and favorite wherever you listen to your podcasts. We'd like to take a minute to thank our sponsor, Cash App. Cash App has been the number one finance app on the App Store for almost two years. It was also the first major peer-to-peer payments app to support Bitcoin. And it's still the fastest and easiest way to turn cash into crypto. Cash App now supports Bitcoin deposits in-app, so be sure to move your Bitcoin from whatever wallet you're using to Cash App. Don't have any to deposit? Cash App is also the most convenient way to instantly buy and sell Bitcoin. No more waiting five days for your ACH transfers to come through. With Cash App, you can buy Bitcoin instantly. When you're ready to take full ownership of your private keys, just use Cash App to scan an external wallet's QR code, it's really that simple cash app also comes with standard banking features like direct deposits and others your bank would never even consider like cash card a customizable debit card that lets you instantly save every time you use it at lyft whole foods and places like chick-fil-a download cash app today from the app store or google play